I invite you to remain standing and turn with me, if you will, uh, to Psalm 86. That will be our main passage. I'm going to first read just one verse from 2 Corinthians. Uh, you can turn there if you'd like, but you can just listen. It's one verse. And then our main passage this morning will be Psalm 86. The first, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Beloved saints, this is God's word, and it is worthy of our attention. Let us listen to it. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And now Psalm 86. A prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have arisen against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. They do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give, your ser- give strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see you and be put to shame. Because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Let us ask the Lord to be with us and speak to us through his word. Our gracious Father, you know our hearts, you know our minds, and how we struggle to believe your words of comfort, how we are quicker to believe the enemy's lies than to believe your truth. If we are honest, your grace sometimes sounds foreign to our selfishness, beyond the realm of plausible and simply too good to be true. Help us not to judge you as if you as if we were the standard but help us to judge our doubts according to your words open our eyes open our hearts open our minds to just how high and inexhaustible your grace truly is do this as we meet you in your word we pray amen you may be seated sermon title is Poverty, and poverty is not a fun subject. 
Most of us, if we're honest, have lived in relative uh, comfort through our lives. We've never really had to worry if we would have a roof over our head. Most of us have never truly known hunger and wondered where our next meal would come from. Even when we tell our friends that we are dead broke, we're not worried about where we're going to sleep that night, if we'll have clothes to wear or food to eat. And so, for most of us, talking about poverty makes us a little uncomfortable. It divides us. For many, it makes us feel guilty because we feel like we, we could do more, we should do more, and we don't know what that is, or we're afraid to do something, or we prefer to do it from a distance, not to get too close. We'd, we'd rather write a check and send it off than to roll up our sleeves and pitch in. Or sometimes we deal with our guilt in another way. We comfort ourselves with personal stories of hard work and overcoming, and we say things like, you know, my grandfather worked three jobs to put food on his table and get his kids the chance to go to college and have a better life than he had. We say things like, they should get a job and make something of themselves. And to be sure, we should work hard and commend those who do. And to be sure, there are many examples of those who have sacrificed greatly so that their families could get ahead. But, but I do think it's important to ask if we really understand poverty. What if you woke up one morning and found that you were actually much poorer than you thought? What if you found, woke up one morning to find out that all your wealth was just an illusion and it had evaporated overnight? What if you found out that poverty wasn't just a problem out there that needs to be addressed, but it was a problem right there in your life, in your world, in your home? Well, maybe today is going to be such a day. <laughs> maybe today is the day you wake up and find out you're poor. Because this morning we're going to look at Psalm 86, which addresses poverty in a way that might surprise most of us. Because David, King David, we know David, right? Son of Jesse, ancestor of Jesus, the one from the story about Bathsheba. One of the, uh, the greatest kings in history, definitely Israel's greatest earthly king, prays from a position of poverty. And it's scripture. It's God's holy word. In other words, it's a prayer recorded not just to know about David, but for us to learn to take to our lips and to pray. We're actually supposed to learn to pray from a position of poverty. But how can we do that if we don't think of ourselves as poor? How can we pray or sing or meditate upon this song? if we think we have nothing in common with those who are poor. I'd like to argue that the division in this world is actually not between the poor and the rich, but between those who recognize and embrace their poverty and those who don't. We are all poor, but our poverty is actually the basis of our hope before the God of love. God calls you to acknowledge and to embrace your poverty 
because God rescues the poor. And to see this, I first want to look at our need, our poverty as, as we find it, and then we will be able to see the provision that God offers as the only true God and as the God of love. And then finally, we'll look at what the poor actually have to offer because the poor have something to offer. When you recognize your poverty, you realize that your life is the only thing you have to offer. And praise God, it's the only thing he accepts. And so that's what we want to look at as we look at Psalm 86 uh, this morning. It is a prayer. It is full of request. In it, David asks God to listen, verse 1. He asks God to preserve his life, verses 2 and 16. He asks God to be gracious, verses 3 and 16. He asks God to gladden his heart, uh, verse 4, and to rescue him from trouble, verse 7, and to show him a sign of favor, verse 17. And his prayer is occasioned by some assault by David's enemies. He says, insolent men who have no regard for God have arisen against him. He's in trouble. It's his day of trouble, he calls it, and he needs help. He needs rescue. Now, we know that David's life was full of adversity. And this could be referring to any one of a number of episodes in his life. Because for David, his enemies weren't metaphorical. They were actually people with swords chasing him, and that was often. Trained warriors, soldiers, armies sought his life. And while most of us might not know what this is like, that doesn't mean we don't know what adversity is like. We know what it's like to have people mistreat us, to lie about us, to try and sabotage us. We know what it's like to fight against invisible forces that seem set on destroying our comfort. And we know what it's like to wrestle with our own sin and our own temptation as true as any earthly enemy. As Paul puts it in uh, Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against cosmic powers over over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We know what it means when Peter says the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We know what it's like to be pursued, attacked, and afflicted. We know what it's like to be in need. We we know what it is to pray out for God to hear our prayers, to, to save our lives, to show us grace and kindness, to restore joy to our hearts, to rescue us from trouble. We know what it is to crave some proof, some evidence, some sign of God's love and favor. But what is surprising is not what David prays for, but where he roots his request. David's requests themselves are familiar, they're relatable. What it is, 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 it's the basis of his prayer that is surprising, how he justifies his request, because each of his requests is attached to a reason with the word for, meaning because. Uh, David says, like in verse 2, for instance, preserve my life because I follow you, I trust in you. Or in verse 3, be gracious to me because I cry out to you. Or in verse 4, gladden my soul because I offer my soul up to you. 
David sees a logic in his prayers. He believes that there are reasons God will listen and God will answer. And I don't think that surprises us. What might surprise us is the reason he gives in the first verse, verse 1. He says, listen to me and answer me because I am poor and needy. David doesn't say, listen to me, I I am your chosen anointed king. You chose me over Saul to be the rescuer of your people, the leader. Instead, he identifies as a servant. Three times he calls himself a servant, verses 2, 3, and 16. And once he calls himself a child of a servant. In other words, saying, my servitude is something I was born into. It's who I am. I am a servant, I was born a servant, I will always be a servant. He sees it as his identity. And as a servant, he chooses to embrace his poverty. And even though uh, uh, confessing poverty isn't new in the Psalms, we see it in Psalm 40, we see it in Psalm 70, what's new is that this is the first time in the Psalms that poverty is actually seen as a reason for God to answer. And yet there's a logic here. Because over and over and over, God has promised to care for the poor and needy. It's who he is. David understands that God cares for the poor and needy. And so he gladly embraces his poverty, knowing that God is a rescuer of the poor. God, you are the one who cares for the poor. I'm poor. Care for me. Answer me. But that simply forces us to ask the question, in what sense is David poor? I mean, when we meet David as a young man, he's the son of Jesse. He tends, his father has flocks. There's plenty of food on the table. There's there's no sense in which this is a family that is starving and struggling. All of his needs were taken care of. Even when he's forced into hiding because Saul is after him, there's so many throughout the the land who who rally around and hide him and and serve him. They give him food. Even the priest gives him the showbread off the table. David never seems to know a day of hunger. When When he becomes king, finally, after Saul dies, he has vast wealth. And so in what sense is David poor? It's interesting, if if you ask most middle class or wealthy people to define poverty, they will do so in terms of material wealth, money and their possessions. And seen this way, the wealthy are the the haves, the ones who have, and the poor are the have-nots, the ones who don't have money and possessions. The poor, on the other hand, describe their situation not in terms of material wealth, but in terms of shame, inferiority, powerlessness, humiliation, fear, hopelessness, depression, social isolation, and voicelessness. You see, the rich focus on the money, the poor focus on its effects. Because they can't buy influence. They can't buy help. They can't buy advocacy to influence those in power. They can't bribe crooked judges and police. The poor know what it means to have nothing. 
when you're poor, all you have is yourself. And, and some, out of desperation, have used the only thing they have left, their bodies, and sold them, or traded them for food or favors or money. And then what comes? Shame, self-loathing, fear, humiliation, depression, hopelessness. If that was your reality, would you define poverty simply according to how big your bank account was? You see, when when we talk about poverty, we're not all talking about the same thing. Have you ever played Monopoly with kids? Okay, it's not just kids. Adults do this too. It's amazing how in one hour or two hours, depending how long the game goes, how quickly we can adopt a persona of rich or poor based upon our Monopoly money. I mean, if you have Boardwalk and you have uh, Park Place, you maybe have a few hotels on those, right? You start feeling pretty good. You start talking pretty big, getting a little cocky or a lot cocky. And then, of course, what do you do? You of course, bring your, fan, your, your money into a fan. And, whew, is, it getting, is it getting warm in here? <laughs> on the other hand, if your money is running out and you're mortgaging what few properties you have, you start getting scared. It's a game, but you start to feel like, oh, what am I going to do? But it's just a game. The wealth, the poverty, their illusions. You can't take the money at the end of the game and go buy a car or a house or, or even a Big Mac. The money, Monopoly money, is only good in the game, in the context. But in the grand scheme of things, your money and your wealth is not much different. We can only consider ourselves rich when we compare ourselves to other people in this world. Your wealth can only purchase things in certain contexts. In other contexts, it's absolutely worthless. Really, all we have is monopoly money. It makes us feel important. It makes us feel powerful in this world. But what happens when you stand before God? Do you pull out your money and fan? (laughs) Hi, God. What do we need to make this all take, go okay? Everything you possess, every dollar, every penny, your houses, your cars, when you stand before God are absolutely worthless. It's like waking up and realizing that your entire bank account is play money and that all the wealth that you thought you had turns out to be worthless. You see, standing before God, we are all equally poor. We are all equally needy. Not one of us has anything with which to influence or control God. Because there's only one who sits in the seat of power. And while our psalm would be quick 
to put us all in the same boat, the SS poverty, it's very careful to make clear that God is not in that boat. Look at verse 8. There is none like you, O Lord. Or verse 9. All nations shall come and worship and glorify you. Verse 10. You alone are God. God is different. God is unique. God is totally different. There is only one who has the power to change things. There is only one hope. And if you're poor, you can't save yourself. And if everyone else is poor, they can't save you either. God alone is able. And that is why David turns to God in prayer, because there's no one else. And David readily acknowledges this. He fears God's name, verse 11, which is to say he honors and he respects it. He knows that eventually every knee must bow before the name of the God of heaven. And David wants to start sooner than later because he alone is God, his name is unique, and, is, and he is alone worthy of such glory and honor. That's the difference between God and man. God possesses the name above all names. He is unique and special and different. Man bows before him and honors him. God receives honor and glory. Think about the implications of that for what Paul says about Jesus in Philippians 2 of Uh, 5 through 11. He says that Jesus has been so exalted that the whole world will have to come and bow to his name and call him Lord. According to Psalm 86, God alone is worthy of such honor and glory. Paul knows, knows that. He knows his scriptures. But that's the whole point. He is saying that Jesus is the God of Psalm 86 to whom every knee must bow and every tongue confess in heaven on earth and under the earth that he is Lord. Paul is confessing that Jesus alone can rescue the needy, that Jesus alone can preserve our lives, that he alone can gladden our souls. But what's really interesting is that's not where Paul starts in Philippians 2. He doesn't start with Jesus has the name above every name. Before he says that, before he talks about Jesus' exaltation, He says, first, Jesus let go of his glory. He says that Jesus became what David claims to be in Psalm 86. Jesus became a servant, born of a servant. 2 Corinthians 8 puts it this way. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus entered into our poverty. He entered into our need in order to rescue us from it. He let go of his glory and his power. He became a poor servant. He became powerless. He became humiliated. He was isolated. He gave up his voice. He was without an advocate as he stood before insolent men who had no fear of God in their eyes. And he was abused and he was oppressed and he was ultimately killed. This is what it means that he became poor for our sakes. It doesn't just mean that he he didn't have a large bank account. Well, that was certainly true. That's not simply what it means. Instead, it means he allowed himself to be mistreated for our sakes. He endured all of this so that we might be rich, so that we might no longer be covered in shame, so, so that we would not be without a voice or an advocate on our behalf so that we would not be alone. 
so that we would be rescued from humiliation so that our lives might be spared. But Jesus isn't just the only hope, and he is that, but he's the loving hope. Psalm 86 doesn't just say, God, there's nowhere else to go, so I guess we're stuck with you. Psalm 86 says, where else would we go to seek for help? You are merciful and gracious and slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There is none like you. There is no other who does the things you do. You alone forgive sin. You alone offer the grace we need. And you alone rescue all who put their trust in you. And God, power and love meet beautifully. So how do we respond to a God like this? What do you give to God, the God who has everything, especially when you discover you have nothing and that you are poor? That's what I'd like to look at as we close. Verse 11 says this, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Now the first part isn't hard to understand. Teach me your ways. Help me obey. We expect to hear such things as this. But what does unite my heart to fear your name mean? Well, verse 12 helps us. I give thanks to you with my whole heart, he says. In other words, the opposite of a united heart is a divided heart. David is asking God to strip away everything that competes for his love and his affections and his loyalty. He desires a heart that is singularly focused on God. He wants a heart that's wholly devoted to the one true God, the God of love. But the heart, we can't be given alone. We can't just give our heart. The heart represents all of who you are. Whoever has your heart has you. And when you're poor, that's all you have to give, yourself. And with God, that's not a bad thing. When you recognize your poverty, you realize that your life is the only thing you have to offer and it's the only thing God will accept because God doesn't want your money. He doesn't need your favors. He only trades in lives. His for yours. He gave all for you and expects you to give all for him. So what do you give the God who has everything? Well, you give yourself. You surrender. It's the only gift God will accept. You don't give 10%. You don't give him one day out of seven. You don't give him your personal lives, but not your professional lives. God demands you. Everything. But in giving all, you find the God who rescues the poor. A God who preserves the lives who trust him. A God who gladdens the hearts of children. A God 
who will not abandon them to the grave. The psalm closes with a request for a sign of God's favor, some proof of God's love. And we resonate, don't we? We all want reminders of God's love. I think those signs come in different forms. It it might come in the form of a relief from a trial. God brings a time of respite from your struggles, and those times are gifts of love. And in those, we see God's gracious hand, his loving care, as as he allows us to catch our breath and rest in him, and we see that gracious hand. But I would argue that it's also a gift of love to allow us to see our poverty. You see, it was through suffering at the hands of insolent men that that David saw his need most clearly and was driven to cry out to God out of his poverty. It It was out of that affliction that he was able to say, really, I have nothing except my need. Rescue me, O Lord. Had those attacks never come, he might not have learned to see just how powerless and truly needy he was. And so for those who have eyes to see, trials can be one of the signs of God's favor and his love. But there's yet one more sign of God's love before us. How do you know God's love? You know his love in the fact that he was willing to send his son, his only son, into this world to take on the form of a servant. You you know his love in the fact that he who was rich for your sakes became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. You know his love because he was willing to go to the cross in order to rescue you. And so the bread and the wine and the Lord's Supper before us are are perpetual reminders of Jesus' death on the cross. They are perpetual signs of his love and his favor. They are continual reminders that your poverty is your greatest asset because God rescues the poor and the needy. And so come, let your heart be gladdened as you surrender yourself to a loving God. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive uh, the Lord's Supper uh, this morning. Well, please join me in prayer. Father, you know us. You know our need. You know that we are poor and that we have nothing that you need, nothing to bribe you with, nothing to hold over you. And we know that you alone are God, that there is none like you, that you are good and you are kind and you are loving. We know that in you we have all we could ever want. We know that for our sakes, Jesus who was rich became poor that we might become rich. We ask that you would teach us to embrace our poverty, knowing that because we are poor and needy, that you hear us and rescue us. And so our confidence is in you. Unite our hearts that we might fear your name. Amen.